0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Do No Harm ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: It was half past five on a Wednesday evening in Tomball, Texas. LeVar Jones pulled off the highway, put his car in park, and sent a text to his boss. Just an update. I'm waiting on law enforcement to meet me at the residence. As he would later testify, Lavar was worried about how this night might play out. I do believe that they will give me a hard time. That's why I have not initiated yet. So I'll wait and play it by ear. 2 hours later, he was still waiting. The police backup he'd requested wasn't on the way, and Lavar decided to go it alone. I'm going to go ahead and attempt to initiate he drove north on a tree-lined country road, passing pastures lined with white fences. Then he turned off into a newly built subdivision where all the trees were chopped down, but the streets were all named after them. Right turn on Pine Trace Drive, left on Hickory Lane, right on Black Birch. He pulled up outside a two-story brick house with big glass windows, a small square of lawn, One of many that looked almost exactly like it. The home of Melissa and Dylan Bright. He was here because he believed that these two might harm their children. That they might already have harmed their children. That's why he had to act tonight. LeVar was nervous as he stepped out of his car and walked towards the front door. Inside the house, the Brights had reason to be nervous too. That's why they planned to record everything that night. Okay,
2: it is 7.30, September 19th, and our meeting with Lavar. we've just been
1: told that... Lavar didn't know, couldn't have known, that he was about to walk into the toughest fight of his career, a scandal that would rock the government agency where he works, and raise serious questions, like, who's really looking out for children? And is this what it takes to keep them safe? Okay, calm, calm down.
3: No, it's my children. I can't calm down.
1: I'm, I'm not, we are not gonna do that.
3: And so we can't see our children until then? So, my yeah. breastfed son? You are taking him from my breast! Melissa, <laughs> you are responsible for taking my child away from my breast. <laughs>
4: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's BYTE.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with BYTE. My two hands alone can't hold you back from harm.
1: From NBC News and WONDERY, I'm Mike Kixenbaugh, and this is Do No Harm. I will never forget the first time I hurt one of my kids. It was 2015. My daughter had just turned two. We were goofing around upstairs, and at one point, I picked her up by her little hands, swinging her gently back and forth. She giggled and begged me to do it again. My wife was standing nearby, smiling. But then, when I swung Eleanor again, the giggling stopped. And by the time I set her down again, she was screaming. She was so small back then, she had no way of telling us what hurt. At an urgent care that afternoon, we were told that I had dislocated her elbow. It was a common injury for toddlers, the doctor said. I shouldn't beat myself up. But that evening, as I looked down at my daughter in her crib, I felt like I had failed her. When I started reporting this story, I thought it was about one family— and a system determined to protect their children. But I soon discovered it was much bigger. This is a story about what happens when our efforts to save the most vulnerable among us is what puts them in danger. And as I met more parents, I thought a lot about my daughter's hurt arm. I started to imagine how things might have gone differently. What if her injury had been more serious? What if the doctor had made different assumptions about me based on my race? Or how much money I make? What if the guilt I'd felt about hurting my child was the least of my problems? This is Episode 1, Fractures. In 2008, more than a decade before LeVar Jones showed up at his front door, Dylan Bright was a 25-year-old sophomore at the University of Georgia. He'd worked in construction and other odd jobs after high school before deciding to go back for an engineering degree. It was the first day of the fall semester, a blistering August morning in
2: Athens. Man, I was excited because I was, I was finally back in school and, and I knew what degree I wanted and
1: I had a purpose. Dylan was sitting in the engineering building, a two-story red brick facility perched atop a hill near the center of campus. When in walked another student, her sandy blonde hair pulled back in a bun. She comes in and she's
2: <laughs> been huffing her backpack and she's, Hot and sweaty. The other student slid into the chair next to Dylan. She, she hates this story.
3: And I'm like, God, please let me stop sweating because I'm going to creep out this guy sitting next to me.
2: And the teacher immediately begins with an icebreaker and you're supposed to talk to the person beside you and tell them something about yourself. You know, I introduced myself and I said, I'm, I'm actually the eldest sibling of eight total. And she looked at me and she said, hi, my name is Melissa and
1: I like the smell of Vicks paper rub. Melissa was 19, a sophomore wearing a sorority t-shirt.
3: And then I proceeded to tell him that my roommate also liked the smell of Vicks Vapor Rub, and we had an oscillating fan in our dorm room and so we'd just open a can of Vicks Vapor Rub, and the whole dorm would smell like it. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody had told me that I was meeting my husband, I'm sure I would have prepared myself differently.
1: They started dating in the fall of 2009. Three years later... After Melissa had graduated, they moved to Houston to be near Dylan's mom and to look for work. One night, a few months after the move, Dylan took Melissa on a date to the Kima Boardwalk, a small amusement park overlooking Galveston Bay.
3: We had zero dollars. I had started my first engineering job about two weeks prior, and we were living with his parents out in Baytown.
1: They had a gift card for Saltgrass Steakhouse. After dinner, they held hands and strolled the boardwalk. Before leaving, he asked her to go on a ride. Melissa always had a thing for Ferris wheels.
2: We're going around, and we get up, you know, and as uh, it stops every so often to let other people on, and so it stops at the very top, and I'm like, man, wow, you know, the, the moon is really clear tonight.
3: He pulled out a ring from his boot, and the first thing I said was no.
2: She said, like, no, 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 like, I don't know, must have been 50 times. And because she was so surprised, about midway through her excitement, she realized that she had been, like, screaming no. <laughs> and so she, she immediately started saying yes,
1: yes, yes. They didn't want to wait. They got married just six weeks later at a Texas lake house owned by Doan's grandparents. Fewer than a dozen family members were there. One of Doan's cousins officiated. It wasn't long before they started talking about having kids.
2: I always wanted to be a dad. I, 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 Again, I come from a big family and I got to grow up with the experience of all the kids and the siblings and, you know, just Christmas and Thanksgiving. I mean, it is next level when you have that many people all experiencing joy at the same time. And that was always my goal.
3: Yeah, we probably tried for about seven months or eight months or so before we got pregnant with
1: Charlotte. It was a long pregnancy. Melissa was 41 weeks along when the contractions finally began. She woke Dylan at 1.30 in the morning, and he drove her to the hospital. By nine that morning, Dylan had their new daughter in his arms.
2: There are, at least in my personal experience, very few moments that are so surreal as, uh, as holding your first child.
1: Charlotte had wisps of dark hair, her eyes wide and alert. Dylan placed her carefully back in Melissa's arms. As she lay on her mom's chest, Melissa whispered, Happy birthday
3: I, I felt like I was standing outside watching in and it's you and this child and your husband, and I think you look at each other a hundred times and say, like, "How in the world did we make this?"
1: Then came the sudden realization that almost every parent grapples with after the birth of their first child. They were responsible for keeping this baby safe.
3: I think that the most terrifying moment when you are a new parent is when um, you know, the nurse is there and she's assisting and she's only a button away and then you're strapping this this little being into a car seat and then they walk you down and they, they just put you in the car and they're like, bye. Are we capable of raising this child, you know, loving her, supporting her? physically, mentally, emotionally.
2: There's an enormous amount of fear of like, okay, (laughs) uh, now
1: we're here, you know, and what do we do next? Almost immediately, Dylan and Melissa knew they wanted to have another baby. Maybe after Charlotte turned two. We did not make it that long. A year later, in October, 2017, Dylan and Melissa returned to the chemo boardwalk where Dylan had proposed, this time to mark a different milestone.
3: We're going to find
2: out if we're having a boy or a girl. I think it's a boy. I think it's a girl.
1: They ate at the same restaurant. Melissa recorded a video on her cell phone as they opened the envelope at the table. They'd already picked out possible names.
5: (laughs) Oh, my goodness.
2: It's a boy. It's a boy. Mesa, I got a boy.
1: With a new baby on the way, Melissa made a difficult decision. She was going to walk away from her budding engineering career to be home with the kids full-time.
3: My job wasn't my passion, and my passion had yet to come. I just knew that being a mom was was the dream.
1: Mason was born on February 4th, 2018. In the months that followed, Melissa filled her social media feeds with photos and videos of her happy babies. Charlotte loved being a big sister. <laughs>
3: So sweet. Can you give Mason a kiss?
1: But every parent knows the first few months with a new baby can be exhausting, especially after your second. Now, the adults no longer outnumber the children, and hardly a moment goes by when one of them doesn't need you. There are diapers to be changed, songs to be sung, snot that literally must be sucked out of stuffy noses with a plastic tube. That last one was a complete and disgusting surprise, let me tell you.
3: It's hard to give your undivided and full attention to one child and then to divide that in half between two dependent, needy children. And not just needy as in, like, they need their diaper changed or they need to be fed, but you're like their sole entertainment.
1: Mommy finger, mommy finger, I are you? Hey, William, hey, William. As they headed into their first summer as a family of four, Melissa filled her calendar with plans. A beach day in early June. Mason's first fireworks on the 4th of July. And a couple of weeks later, on the morning of July 18th, Charlotte's first trip to a theater. The movie was Ferdinand. While the previews ran, Melissa snapped a photo of the blonde-haired toddler sitting in a red leather chair, grinning so big her eyes are squinted shut. Melissa texted the picture of the two-year-old to Dylan, who was at work. Life is great and everybody's happy and healthy. And then just like that,
2: it's a complete nightmare.
1: Dylan was still at the office later that day when he got a call from Melissa. He figured she was going to ask him to stop at the store on his way home. But when he picked up his phone... Never in our,
2: uh, our history together have I ever heard my wife make those kind of noises. To to be in such a panic, it's, it's just this menagerie of yelling and screaming and crying. And I immediately knew that something was
5: wrong. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so of every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and for my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake, and then I go crush a workout on the Body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my special introductory offer to you. If you go to Body.com to sign up, the next 5,000 new subscribers will get 72 off a full year of access to over 120 programs. Yeah, that's only 33 cents a day to start now and see how fast the pounds come off. And if they don't, you can get your money back. No questions asked. Just go to body.com to save 72% and get life-changing results. That's B-O-D-I.com. So, you keep trying to get in shape, and it keeps not
6: working. I'm Lacey Green, a super trainer with body. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And I've got a story you have to hear. I have a client who came to me because she was really frustrated that every gym or trainer she tried made her feel bad because she was a beginner. She had tried it all, and she just felt humiliated. And that's when we started working together, and I took her through my three-week program called For Beginners Only. Once she realized that she wasn't the problem and that she just needed the right program, she started to get results and now she's completely unstoppable and feeling so strong and confident and i can do the same for you on the body app subscribers lose five to ten pounds consistently in their first month and i bet you will too in fact cnn underscore just named body best fitness app and right now body has a special introductory offer the next 500 new users who sign up for a year of body save 72 percent. that's just 33 cents a day all you have to do is go to body.com that's b-o-d-i.com
1: I was like, Melissa, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's going on? Dylan stood up from his desk and pressed his phone to his ear, trying to make sense of his wife's frantic screams.
2: And, and all I could hear through her sobs was Mason. Uh, and then I heard something about head, hit his head, Mason hit his head. Uh, and then she goes, calling 911, and she hung up the phone.
1: And I jumped in the truck. I rushed home as fast as I could. His office was only a couple of miles from home. As he sped at 90 miles per hour along residential streets, nightmare scenarios flashed through his mind. Was his son seriously hurt? Was he dead? What had happened?
2: This is just a terrifying thought because all you know is that something is wrong, your child is hurt, and that's it, that's all you got. Never in my life have I ever
1: felt that powerless, ever. He pulled up to the house, threw his truck in park, and jumped out. He didn't even stop to turn off the engine. As he bolted in through the garage, he noticed a hose and a sprinkler set up in the front yard, a lawn chair in the driveway, a beach towel and his daughter's swimsuit discarded in the grass. I ran inside and Melissa was there in the living room. Mason was wailing on the floor. Melissa was on the phone with 911. She was so frantic. It was difficult to make sense of what she was saying.
3: I just was pleading like, oh God, oh God, help us.
1: There wasn't time to ask his wife what happened. Dylan needed her to calm down. He asked her to go out to the street to flag down the ambulance while he stayed on the line with 911. He picked up his son and pulled him close to his chest.
2: You could tell he was, he was kind of, I don't know, like he was, I don't know, maybe not very lucid, but, but I could see where his head was swollen and, and I could tell that something, you know, maybe he hit his head because at this point I had no idea what happened.
1: A few minutes later, two paramedics stepped out of an ambulance. They looked at the red lump bulging from the five-month-old baby's head and told Dylan they needed to get him to a hospital. Melissa rode in the ambulance while Dylan followed in his truck, leaving Charlotte behind with Melissa's mom. At Texas Children's Hospital, emergency medical staff quickly checked Mason's vitals and connected him to monitors. Everybody's in white coats, so I don't know whose are
2: doctors or whose attendings or who's nurses, I don't know, but there was six people in the room, easy, seven, all plugging up different things and checking different vitals and, and all doing something busy around the bed. And, and it's a little, tiny little
1: emergency room. As Dylan knelt at Mason's bedside, medical staff rushing around him, He reached through metal bars and grabbed his son's tiny hand.
2: I just kept saying, look, please, you know, please be okay. Please be okay. Over and over and over. Please be okay.
1: Then the world seemed to spin and Dylan slumped forward. A hospital worker ran over and caught him before he fell.
2: And and actually, I don't remember this, but, but apparently I actually passed out in that moment. I was so scared. I didn't know what to do. I just, I got, I don't know, I forgot to take a breath.
1: Someone brought Dylan a chair and some juice. Mason was in stable condition and had fallen asleep. Doctors just needed to run some tests to understand the extent of his injuries. While they waited, Dylan pulled the chair up next to his wife, and finally, for the first time since she'd called him in a panic more than an hour earlier, they had a chance to talk. And so I'm like, babe, you know what what happened? You know,
2: and and she immediately started crying again.
1: Melissa explained through tears how she and the kids had been playing in a sprinkler in the front yard, trying to stay cool on a muggy Houston afternoon. Soon, after 30 minutes or so, Melissa said it was time to get the kids dried off so she could head inside to start dinner.
3: We had carpet inside at the time, so I wanted to get the kids stripped down before I brought them inside to dry them off, clean them up.
1: After taking off Mason's swim top... She looked around for a safe spot to set the baby down while she wrangled Charlotte's bathing suit off. It was too hot to lay him on the driveway. Setting a wet baby in the grass would just make him itchy. So she placed him face up on the seat of a lawn chair. Mason was just five months old, wasn't crawling or rolling over yet, and she figured it would be safe. But when she turned away...
3: I just heard, all of a sudden, it was just this blood-curdling scream.
1: She remembered turning and seeing Mason face up on the concrete driveway. He must have kicked his feet and pushed himself off the chair. She grabbed Mason and rushed inside to call 911, her naked two-year-old trailing behind her. As she spoke to the dispatcher, Mason suddenly stopped screaming.
3: I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know, you know, is my, my child dead? Is my child passed out? What do I do when a child passes out? I don't even know what the 911 operator was even asking me at that time or telling me to do. All I know is that after you know shaking his body a little bit, it could have been 10 seconds, it could have been 30 seconds, it could have been a minute, I don't know. He finally started screaming again and I had never felt so relieved to hear a child scream, even though just moments ago, the screaming was the worst thing I had ever heard in my life. At least the screaming was better than nothing.
1: That's when Dylan rushed in through the garage. In the hospital room, Melissa told Dylan she was sorry. This was all her fault. Dylan hugged her and told her it was going to be okay. Were you upset with her at that moment? No,
2: no, no, not no. It, it, it. I, I've got, I've, <laughs> I've got a son who's who's plugged up to a bunch of stuff, you know, on on an emergency room table, and then and then a wife who immediately is just. In pieces because she somehow thinks that, you know, she caused it. That, that no amount of, of, you know, conversation or anger or frustration or anything for me would in any way be worse than what Melissa was already putting herself through. So all I could do was just sit beside her and, and, and hold her and hug her and, and, you know, tell her I loved her and, and that we were there for Mason, that he was going to be okay.
1: But as they looked at Mason, asleep on the bed, they weren't so sure.
3: Your baby in a neck brace taking up like a fraction of this long hospital bed because he's so small compared to the bed. And you stare at him there, and then you stare at the screen, and you stare at these numbers, and you don't know what they mean. But if they're green, then that means good, and you can take the next breath. And then you stare at him again.
1: Soon, one of the doctors came to share the results of Mason's CT scan. He had a fractured skull, the doctor explained. And there appeared to be bleeding around his brain.
3: You know, we're not medical professionals. We don't know what that means. And so we're just asking questions.
1: For now, the doctors didn't have many answers. But Mason's injuries were serious enough that he needed to be transferred to Texas Children's Hospital's main campus in Houston to be evaluated by a neurosurgeon. While they waited, another hospital worker came into the room. She wasn't wearing scrubs or a white coat like the others. She carried a notebook and introduced herself as a social worker. She said she needed to take a walk with Melissa in the hallway, just the two of them.
2: And, and I assumed it was, you know, paperwork. Mom was there when Mason got entered in and she had to go sign paperwork because they're about to transport him.
3: And so I was like, okay, we get down the hallway and she closes the door of this little small conference room with a table and a few chairs. And she first, she's like, how are you? And, you know, I just thought it was somebody checking in on me, my well-being, our well-being. How are we holding up in this traumatic event? And so the first thing I said is I just took a deep breath and I just exhaled. And I said, this is the first moment of silence I've had in the last few hours. And it's just so relieving.
1: Then the hospital social workers started asking questions. What had happened to Mason? What was going on before the incident? Had Melissa been stressed out or angry that day? No, Melissa told her. It had been a normal day.
3: It didn't really raise any red flags to me. I had no intention of hiding anything, so I tried to tell it to the best of my ability, everything that had just transpired the couple hours beforehand.
1: Back in Mason's hospital room, Melissa described the conversation to Dylan, and she wondered, should she be concerned? Dylan told her not to worry. She's
2: not interrogating you, Melissa. You know, they're going to transport us to this other hospital, and they're probably just trying to gather all the facts so the doctors have all of the information that they could possibly need to, you know, to help
1: Mason. Whatever they were doing, it was to help their baby.
2: But I'm like, babe, it's, it's part of the treatment process. You know, it's, it's part of, it's, it, we have to go through this.
1: But the Brights hadn't considered something important. A key detail that changed everything. Their baby had suffered serious injuries. And Melissa was the only witness.
3: Again, I was very, very naive. Even at this point, it did not even dawn on me that they were accusing me of child abuse. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery...
1: That evening, an ambulance transferred Mason to Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Melissa rode with him. Dylan followed in his pickup. As they walked through the hospital's sliding glass doors, the Brights
2: felt hope. It really wasn't until we were there at Texas Children's in the room, checked in, he was plugged up and and everything that, that you really, or at least for me, was able to kind of take enough of a breath to be like, okay, we're we're in the right place, we're in the right hands. He's going to be okay. He's going to be okay.
1: When Dylan described that moment to me, his words sounded familiar. I'd heard similar comments from many other parents during my years as a healthcare reporter for the Houston Chronicle. Texas Children's, a gleaming glass facility in the Texas Medical Center, is one of the top-ranked pediatric hospitals in the country. I'd spent hours there over the years, reporting on remarkable medical breakthroughs. I wrote about young parents who came from Idaho because only Texas Children's doctors could save their conjoined twins. The Pakistani couple whose daughter needed a rare double lung transplant. A baby born without an immune system who thanks to a treatment developed at Texas Children's left with his mother's donated white blood cells pumping through his veins. Texas Children's Hospital is a place where desperate parents come in search of miracles. But as the Brights were about to discover, the hospital also prides itself as a national leader in another lesser-known field of medicine, one focused on saving children's lives, not from disease, but often from their own parents. Dylan and Melissa spent the night curled up on a couch at Mason's bedside under the faint glow of monitors. Nurses were in and out of the room, checking on Mason. The Brights hardly slept. It was
3: the first moment we could take a breath and understand the weight of what was going on around us. I just cried, and it was the first time, pretty much all afternoon, that Dylan and I could even go through and process together what happened.
1: The next morning, Mason had to have another brain scan. The baby squirmed and cried as staff held him down. A few hours later, a new group of medical workers showed up at Mason's hospital room. One doctor stepped forward shook their hands and introduced himself, Dr. Kwabana Sarapong. He said they were part of Mason's care team.
2: They used those exact words. You know, we're, we're part of the staff that's helping to treat your son.
1: Some of
3: them wearing regular clothes, some of them in a doctor's coat, some of them in a scrubs. And um, they came in and they kind of introduced themselves. They said that they were the CAP team.
2: I, I didn't ask, what does that acronym stand for? What does CAP team stand for? You know, as far as I was concerned, it was just a group of doctors who were assigned Mason's case.
1: After asking Melissa detailed questions about how Mason's head was injured, the doctors asked the Brights to step into another room. They wanted to go over the results of his CT scans and MRI. So he, he got the computer brought up and he started pulling up images. And they said, okay, so, you know, here's your son's skull. On the screen, Dr. Sarapong pulled up a 3D image. He pointed to a two- or three-inch line stretching across the top left of Mason's skull. That must have been where he landed in the driveway,
2: Melissa thought. They said, okay, so you see here, here's the fracture in a skull, and you can kind of see the extent
1: of it. Then the doctor clicked on the image rotating it until it was focused on the back half of Mason's skull.
3: He's showing us, you know, do you see how on this side of the head, there's this marking, and on this side of the head, there's this marking.
1: And he zooms in,
2: and he zooms all the way in on this one little particular patch on, on the back of Mason's head, and you see the, he goes, you see that tiny little line right there? And I'm like, well, yeah. That's another
1: fracture. And I'm like, oh, okay, what, what does that mean? The doctor wanted to know. Had the baby fallen more than once? No, Melissa replied. Well, then where did the second skull fracture come from? Dylan and Melissa looked at each other. That's when Dylan realized the doctors didn't believe his wife. You had doctors telling you that these injuries didn't match the story that your wife was saying. Did you ever for a a fleeting second suspect that your wife had hurt your baby? No, not at all, never, not once. And I knew my wife didn't hurt
2: Mason. And so I'm like, there there has to be an explanation. There has to be something that caused this. I asked to
1: talk with doctors and other workers involved in Mason's care, but Texas Children's Hospital declined to make anyone available for an interview. As they walked away from their meeting with Dr. Sarpong, the Brights still didn't realize he had a very different role than the other doctors caring for their son. And it would still be a couple of days before someone explained what the CAP in CAP team stood for. Child Abuse Pediatrics. It's a relatively new medical subspecialty, established only a decade ago. If you were like me, you've probably never heard of it. These doctors are now stationed at nearly every major children's hospital in the country. They're trained to spot subtle signs of abuse in children too young to speak for themselves. Diagnosing not only a child's condition, but also what caused it. And many parents who encounter them are surprised to learn, often much later, these doctors don't just examine children's injuries. They also work closely with law enforcement. Their goal is simple, to save lives. After the meeting that morning, unbeknownst to the brights, A young physician training under Dr. Sarpong typed a preliminary note in Mason's medical records. The presence of multiple skull fractures is concerning for a non-accidental skeletal injury. The single-impact fall would not be expected to cause both injuries. Within hours, two men showed up in Mason's hospital room. They said they were with Child Protective Services.
2: And they said, hey, you know, we had a referral that there's a,
1: possible case of child abuse they wore button down shirts tucked into their pants and were holding notepads they said they needed to ask some questions melissa felt her heart race but she tried to stay calm she remembers telling the investigators
3: thanks for being an advocate for children we understand your job's hard you know children need an advocate we have no problem giving you what you need to know
2: You know, you always see the shows on TV where if there's a gunshot wound type thing, the hospital has to call the police and they have to investigate type thing. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. Uh, They have to be here. They have to put this case together. But I knew that Melissa had done nothing wrong. The whole time I'm like... Yes. Well, let's answer your questions. Let's, let's get through this part of it so you guys can, can sign off and you can see this for what it is and that it was an accident and that we can get back to just focusing on Mason's recovery.
1: Melissa was nervous as she followed one of the investigators, a man named LeVar Jones, down the hall to begin her interview. She tried not to panic. If they just told the truth, she told herself, everything would be okay.
3: I hate that our family's involved in this, but I understand that we've got to go through the process because the process is what exists to protect children. And we just thought it was um, something we had to do in order for them to be able to protect all of the other children, not ours.
1: From that moment forward, nothing went the way she expected. Coming up this season on Do No Harm.
4: We have a vulnerable age child that cannot speak to us. A vulnerable age child with very serious injuries. So we have to consider all that information until we have something to say. Without a shadow of a doubt, this child is safe.
2: There's a line out there of what CPS should do and should not do. And it should be a very bright line. I see my job is pushing back and trying to make sure that line stays very bright and not crossed.
6: I don't know what the procedure is. I don't know what hole needs to be plugged, but I never wanna hear again that a doctor told CPS they needed to look into a child being hurt that wasn't followed up on and dealt with
2: swiftly. People were looking at each other like, I can't believe this is actually happening because I'd never seen that happen before ever.
4: I felt like the hospital the police investigator, the prosecutors, CPS, the judge, they have their knees on our neck and we couldn't breathe. Literally, I couldn't breathe. There was nothing I can say and nothing I can do to make them let up.
1: From Wondery and NBC News, this is episode one of six of Do No Harm, a story about innocent children and the adults who are supposed to keep them safe. Episode two is available now, but you can listen to the first three episodes ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Do No Harm was written, reported, and hosted by me, Mike Hixenbaugh, a national investigative reporter for NBC News. Special thanks to my reporting partner, Carrie Blakinger, whose reporting made this podcast possible. If you want to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. In the episode notes, you'll find some links and offers from our sponsors. Please support them. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey. Associate producers are Chris Siegel and Allison Bailey. Story editor is Julie Shapiro. Additional production assistance from Daniel Gonzalez. Music supervisor, Scott Velazquez. Managing producer, Leta Pandya. Sound design by Jeff Schmidt. Executive produced for NBC News by Steve Lichtai. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louis, and Hernán López for Wondery.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Do No Harm ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.